How's everyone doing? Doing good. Doing good? Look at the person next to you. Just say, hey, I'm so glad you're here. So, uh, so yeah, so we, um, can, can we get the worship team, man? They just did an amazing job this morning of leading us. And uh, so a couple things before we jump into our message this morning. First of all, we've got a lot of folks that watch from Florida. And uh, so we want all our folks online that are watching Florida, we're praying for you. We continue to pray for you. Uh, Jen and I want to say thank you. We've got a lot of you reaching out to us saying, hey, are your families okay? And I uh, just want you to know um, all of our families are doing pretty good. Um, so uh, Jen's parents live in Wachula, which is one of the most devastated areas of the hurricane in Florida. And uh, they're still without power. So if you can just continue to pray for her mom and dad and extended family that live in that area, because a lot of them are still uh, without power and some of them are... Um, flooded and the floodwaters don't disappear in Florida like they do up here in the hills and so they kind of stick around and so if you could just pray uh, for folks that are experiencing flooding down there as well just continue to lift up Florida and uh, we just thank you so much for checking in on us and our families and just wanted you to know they're all doing well. Uh, one of our core values here at Warehouse Church is we celebrate stories, right? And we say that we're going to celebrate God's big story of what God, the big story that God's doing in all of our lives through salvation. And then we also celebrate the little stories of the things that God's doing in and, and through our lives. And so we had three amazing stories happen um, this week with three little ones that were born and brought into this world. And so we want to uh, just continue to uh, celebrate um, and uh, 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 Taylor and Mackenzie and baby Hudson. And then uh, Anita's uh, grandson, uh, oh, I'm going to, Xavian. And uh, so we want to celebrate that. And Xavian's doing well. And Hudson's doing well, too. He's got a little um, uh, jaundice going on. He, or, yes. yes. And so he's, uh, uh, so we're just praying for him and that he does well. And then we have Alex and Jerrica are on their way home from Florida with baby Bo. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, it's exciting. Their, their journey has been long, and, and uh, I'm so excited for them. Uh, so Alex is, Alex is driving by himself from Florida uh, to here, and then Jerrica and Bo got on a plane, and they're flying here. And, uh, and so um, they, they weathered the storm, so they were in the hurricane, uh, on the north side of the hurricane, and uh, were living in the hospital with baby Bo uh, through the hurricane. So that little guy, man, he started out with a bang, right? And uh, so he's going to do some really cool and amazing things. I just believe that. And so we want to pray for these three families, though. We want to pray for them and uh, pray for these little ones and, and pray that we as a church, that we're going to come alongside of them because another one of our core values is legacy. And so here's a little three little legacies that we want to pour our lives into so they they grow up knowing and loving Jesus. So let's just pray real quick for these families. Father God, we thank you so much um, for these little boys. These three little boys that have been born, Xavier and Hudson and Bo. And God, we thank you for each of their individual stories. And God, we thank you for their parents. And Lord, we pray. We pray for their health and that they would, uh, they would grow up to be healthy. Father, we pray for their legacy. That Lord, they would grow up knowing you and loving you. We pray for our church that we would come around these three families and we would love on their kids as our own. And Lord, that every chance we get, that we would pour into these children your love. That they would know they would know without a shadow of a doubt that you love them and that we love them. And so, Lord, we pray for the, the, those little babies. And, Lord, we pray for their families, their parents. God, we pray that you would give them energy when they're running out, Lord. God, we pray that they would take rest when there's an opportunity to find sleep. Lord, we pray that you would give them wisdom and discernment in raising these three boys up to know you and to love you. And, Lord, that these three boys would just do amazing things for you. And so, Lord, we pray for them, Xavier and Hudson and Bo, God, do some cool things in their lives and let us be a part of that. In your name we pray, amen. 
So if you get a chance to uh, reach out to those three families and just let them know that you love them and you're behind them and you're for them, uh, especially Jerrica and Alex. Uh, Alex is there uh, bringing Bo home. We've got a meal train set up for them, and uh, they've been through a hurricane. They've been through a lot. We want to help them and, as they uh, bring home um, Bo. And so if you'd like to provide a meal for them, you can go on our Facebook page, uh, Prayers and Announcements, and, uh, and you can sign up for the meal train. We would appreciate it. If you need help with that, Brian uh, Akers is the one kind of leading that, and so you can just talk to him and he'll get you set up. One last celebration and we're going to jump in the word. Uh, so my very best friend is here today, Anthony, and uh, Anthony's from Atlanta and it's his birthday today. And so, um, so he's celebrating his 50th today. And uh, so I'm always older than him, which I hate it, but, uh, um, but I'm so glad that he's here and he's a guest and he's sitting in the back because that's what guests do. So, um, so the rest of us should sit, toward, sit towards the front. And um, so, uh, so uh, just a little quick reminder of that. So anyway, let's jump into our message for this morning. We've been hanging out in 40 Days in the Word, and uh, we've traveled a long distance already. In week one, we talked about how uh, the Word of God, uh, how we can trust it to be true. And as so many people, when I meet them, and they're, just in, they're just getting used to the Word of God, they're like, but how do I know it's true? And so we gave you some really good stuff and some good information on how we know that the Bible is true. And then week two, Brian Akers did such an amazing job talking to us about how the Bible changes lives and how it's been changing lives for hundreds hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's still changing lives today. And so we looked at a story of Christian Hosoi and how the Bible changed his life. And, and, and I know you have stories of how the Bible has changed your life. And so then week three, last week, we talked about how we're going to partner with the Holy Spirit, right? Like when we partner with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit shows us things that we never saw in the Bible. That when we allow the Holy Spirit into our lives, when we say yes to Jesus and the Holy Spirit's activated and we lean into and we partner with the Holy Spirit, that, that he shows us the solution to our problems, that the Holy Spirit will show us the things that are keeping us from reaching our goals, that the Holy Spirit shows us how God is protecting us in the midst of the chaos in our lives. And then we learn uh, that the Holy Spirit also reveals to us that God's always with us, that in those moments, even in those moments when we feel like we're all alone, that God's always with us. So we talked about how important it is to partner with the Holy Spirit when you approach the Word of God and invite the Holy Spirit to come and open your eyes. So that's where we've been. And now here's where we're going in today. Today, we're going to get get very practical. So today's not going to be like your typical message. It's going to be kind of more like a how-to session. It might be like uh, bring you back to teaching in high school days, but your favorite teacher, the one that engaged you. And, uh, and so you're going to learn some things today. So I invite you to grab that pen that's in front of you on the seat back in front of you or the seat back behind you. Grab a pen, grab a scrap of paper and take some notes or grab your phone, take some notes on your phone and, uh, and follow along because today uh, I want to show you, I want to show you how to study the Bible on your own. Like, here's what I know to be true, that you can't rely on a preacher to help you study the Bible. Like, Sunday morning is not enough to get you through the week. This is the pep rally. This is just like the, hey, here's what we're doing. We're getting you pumped up. We're getting you excited. But you've got to be able to study the Bible on your own the rest of the week. And so today, I want to give you some tools, some tips to help you to study the Word of God on your own. So I want you to take some good notes today, because there's no way that you are going to remember everything that we talk about today. But here's the main point, and it's a big point, and it's, a, and, it's, and it's an important point, and it's this. The secret to understanding the Bible is learning to ask the right questions. The secret to understanding the Bible is learning to ask the right questions. So many people come up to me and say, Pastor Rick, I'd read the Bible. I heard you. I know you want me to read the Bible. I know I should read the Bible. But every time I open up, I just don't understand what it says. To which I would say, well, then you're not asking the right 
questions. And so today I want to help you understand what are the questions, what are the right questions to ask so that I can understand God's word, so that I can study the word of God on my own, and uh, so I can feed myself, right? Like the, the, the second thing that drives me nuts is when people say in church, well, I'm not getting fed, pastor, so I don't go to church. And I'm like, well, you got your own silverware, right? Like, I don't feed you at home. I don't come to your house and show up and cut your meat into nice little cubes and feed you. You do that on your own. And the same is true of our spiritual growth. Like, we got to take ownership of it. And so I want to help you to understand what you're reading and, and feed yourself so that you can feed yourself and so you can sustain your own spiritual life. And so remember this, and this is important. Remember that the Bible is a supernatural book it's supernatural, and, and you can study the heck out of passage and never get anything out of it if you don't have the tools or the equipment to help you to understand it. Like, you'll look at a familiar verse uh, or a familiar passage again and again. I love this about the Bible. I'll look at a verse that I read a year ago, and I'll read it again, and I'll like, man, I didn't see that. Like, that's new. That's something I never knew about that verse. And that's the truth about the Bible is because it's supernatural and because it's living and active that you can never mind all the gold out of a particular passage because this book is filled with so much treasure. Like it is a treasure dig every time I open the word of God. And so let me encourage you to learn these principles that we're going to talk about and I'm going to share with you this morning. Because when you do, when you apply them, when you use them, you will begin to see new and exciting things in the Bible that you've never seen before. And so, so let's jump in because typically there are four words or four tools that you need to know when studying the Bible. And I'm going to give them to you up front and then we're going to unpack them. And the first one is observation. Uh, you need to know about observation. You need to know about interpretation. You need to know about association. And you need to know about application. And so observation, interpretation, uh, association and application. And so let's, let's look at each of them uh, really quick here. The first one or the first step in any Bible study is observation. Everybody say observation. observation. And so basically what that means is you're answering the question, what does it say? Like, what does the book say? What are the words that I'm reading? What do they say? You simply look at the verse or the story or the text and you observe it. And so you, you don't, you're not trying to interpret it yet. You're not trying to figure out its meaning. You just write down what you observe. This is what I saw. I saw this, I saw this, and I saw this. Or that word jumped out of me, or that word jumped out of me, or so-and-so did this, this, and this. And you just observe exactly whatever it is that you see as you read. And, and now remember, the difference between reading the Bible or Bible reading and Bible study is that when you're studying the Bible, you're writing stuff down. You're taking notes, right? And, uh, and you write it down or you type it into your computer, or you put it in notes into your phone. And, uh, and so this is what Rick Warren says. He says that if you're not making notes, then you're not actually studying the Bible. You're just reading it. And so I don't want us to just be readers of the word. I want us to be doers of the word. And so I want to encourage you, get a notebook, get a, get a journal, get a, um, put some notes on your computer, Evernote or whatever you use, and start taking notes on the things that you're reading. And so, so look at the text and write it down what it says. Just observe. Just observe. It, it says this, it says this, it says this. That's the first step. Now, after we've observed, we begin the next step, which is interpretation. And that's where you ask the question, what does it mean? So I've read it. I've observed it. I've written down a few things about what I've observed. Now I'm going to ask the question, what does it mean? And, and the Bible means what it means, not what it says. 
And that may sound weird to you, but it's important. The Bible means what it means, not what it says. And so how do you know what it means? How do you know what the Bible means? Well, you know by looking at the context around it. The context around what you're reading. You read the passage of before it. You read the passages after it. You look at the whole context of when the book was written. So you get some context. Who wrote it? When was it written? What was going on when it was written? And you need to understand the context. For instance, if I were to say the word pin, uh, and, and I would say, what does the word pin mean to you? Uh, some of you might, well, like you might like to bake. And so you might immediately say, oh, rolling pin, right? Because I like to bake, and so I'm always using my rolling pin. Uh, some of you might say, well, uh, to me, when I hear the word pin, I think of bowling pin because I enjoy bowling, and so that's what's on my mind. Or, or some of you may have just been at a birthday party, and I say the word pin, you're like, oh, pin the tail on the donkey because I watched the kids do that yesterday. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but the word pin alone, just three-letter word, P-I-N, it has over 60 different meanings. 60 different meanings. So, so here's the deal. If you, uh, you can't just say that, uh, say of a word, well, it means this without the context, without knowing the context of what the word is being used. Uh, and, and it, so it means what it means in the context. So like if you're a wrestling match and someone says pin, they're not talking about a rolling pin. They're not talking about a bowling pin. They're talking about pinning someone down on the floor and doing the count, one, two, three, you're done. And so, so you got to understand the context. You have to understand where the word, what the word is and where it's being used. So you take time to look at the word and figure out the interpretation. What does the author mean when he's saying that word? And so after you ask the question, what does it mean? The third step is association. And association is just asking, what are other verses that will help me to understand this verse? What are other verses in the Bible that may have the same uh, context or the same uh, word in it that I can go to and I can figure out what it means by association? Is there anything else in the Bible that would help me to understand what I'm reading? And the best commentary, hear me when I say this, the best commentary in the Bible is the Bible itself. So a lot of people will go to commentaries, and those are these big books. There's some in my office, big books that theologians, really smart people that make up Bible words. They do. They make up words. They're not real words. They make up words uh, in the, about the Bible, and they write uh, paragraphs about what they interpret that scripture to mean. And they're really smart people, and they've studied, and they know things that maybe we don't know, and they go in context that maybe we've never thought about. And, and oftentimes, people will go right to the commentary. Now, when I was in seminary, which is a school to, uh, to get my master's in divinity, um, when I was in seminary, my professors would constantly say, don't use a commentary. Don't use a commentary until you've studied the Bible and figured out what the Bible is saying about the Bible. Once you've done the hard work of figuring out what the Bible is saying about the Bible and you still can't figure it out, then you can go to a commentary. And so, um, so we need to understand, uh, use verses, other verses in the Bible, other scenarios in the Bible to help us to understand what we're reading. And, and when you're trying to interpret an unclear passage, use a passage that you understand that's talking about a similar thing to understand the thing that you don't understand. In other words, if you read something in the Bible and it doesn't make sense and you don't know what it means, you look for something else in the Bible that does make sense and helps you to understand what you're reading. Always use what's clear to explain what's unclear. 
And if you don't do that, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start to interpret things incorrectly, and then you're going to come up with some really wild hair ideas of what the Bible's saying. And you're going to be so far off the original mark of what God wanted. So we got to take time to see what the Bible says about the Bible. So association is the third step. The fourth step uh, is application. And this one is huge. This is the most important step. Like, don't skip this step. It's asking the question, what am I going to do about it? Like, I just read this. I interpreted it. I helped the Bible help me understand it. Now, what am I going to do about what I just read? You see, Bible study isn't Bible study if there's no application. If you're not applying it to your life, you're just reading the Bible. You're not doing Bible study. And this is, I think, the most important part. How does the passage affect me? Or how does it change me? How does it transform me? That's application. And so you have observation, you have interpretation, you have association, you have application. And so these are four parts or four steps of an effective Bible study. And, and like I said, we're going to get real practical today. And so here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes is I'm, we're going to put these four steps into action by reading the same passage together and then applying these four steps and seeing what we find in a passage in the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Philippians. So if you're online, uh, grab your Bible or grab an app at home. Uh, if you're in here, grab your Bible app or grab your Bible. And let's look at Philippians. And we're going to look at chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 19 through 30 together. Now, anytime I read a passage of the Bible, if I'm not familiar with the context of it, uh, here's where I start. I start with discovering who wrote it, when it was written, and what was going on in the time that was written. And, uh, and so uh, here's what we need to know about this passage. This passage was written by a guy named Paul. And Paul, uh, who wrote most uh, or a good part of the New Testament, he's living in Rome. So he's writing this passage from Rome and he's in prison, and he's in prison for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. So he's in prison for his missionary work, and he's waiting in prison to find out if he'll ever be released. And he writes this letter to the church, uh, the church at Philippi. That's why they call it Philippians. It's the church at Philippi, and that's a city in Greece. And you could even go and you could Google, where is Philippi? And it would tell you it's a city in Greece, and it may even give you a picture. Uh, and the church there in Philippi, uh, if, you, if you do your homework, you'll figure out that they had sent Paul a love offering. And now he's writing them back in response to their generosity. And so he's writing them a letter. So the book of Philippians is basically a thank you note for sending him money and for supporting him in his ministry. And in the middle of this thank you note, we find today's passage, which is, uh, which is Philippians chapter 2. Now you might be, well, Pastor Rick, how would I know all that? Well, here's the cool thing about many Bibles is that at the beginning of every book of many Bibles, especially if it's a study Bible, it gives you the context. It tells you who wrote it, when they wrote it, and what's going on. So I'd encourage you, if you don't have a good Bible, get a study Bible. Um, if you don't have a study Bible, you can Google it, and you can ask yourself, hey, what's going on when Philippians was written? And it'll give you everything I just told you. So it's all right there at your fingertips. You just have to be willing to search for it. And, uh, and so here in the middle of this, Paul uh, is talking about some people. And so let's read Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 31 together. And here's what it says. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him 
who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me the sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him." Because he almost died for the work of Christ, he risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. Now, if you were to read this, your first impressions might be of this passage might be that, well, that's not really a very deep passage. Like, it's really just a basically a thank you note, and he's talking about two guys that he's going to send. He's just giving directions. Like, there's not a whole lot here. It's not very deep. And, and Paul, uh, he's, he's talking about his two boys. He's talking about Timothy, and he's talking about Epaphroditus. And, and it doesn't seem like, you might even read this and go, it doesn't even seem like there's a whole lot of meat on the bone. Like, there's not a whole lot to learn from this. Like, I want to get to Philippians chapter 4, right, where it talks about I can do all things. I can't wait to get there, so I'm just going to skip over this. And, and, you, and I was tempted. If I'm real and honest with you, I was tempted to just skip right over it too, because then first impression was like, big deal. So, so Paul's like saying thank you, and he's sending these two guys to, to Philippi uh, to be with them, and one of them almost died. And, uh, and, and so if you thought that this was worthy of just skipping over, you'd be wrong. And, and I was wrong, and because there's so much in this passage that if we don't take the time to look at it, we'll miss. And I want you to remember, as you read the Bible, I want you to remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 uh, again and again and again. Because remember, this is what Paul told Timothy. He said, all. Everybody say all. All, All, which means everything. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it says all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so Paul reminds Timothy and also reminds us that there's no wasted ink in this book. Like everything has a purpose and everything has a meaning and everything is important that there's something in every piece of this or it wouldn't be here. And so even this passage has something to teach us. So let's just look at it real quick and and see what it says. And let's start with observation. So when I did this and what I would have simply done is asked myself the question, what does it say? And, And I would simply look at it. And I'd maybe read through it a few times. It took us maybe a minute and a half to read the passage. So I might read it through a few times. And as I read it, I'd write down what I see. Nothing fancy, just whatever I saw. And so when I read this passage, I saw three things. And the first thing I saw is that Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. So I'd write that down. Paul intends to send two men to Philippi. Verse 19 says, I hope to send you Timothy. Verse 25 says, I better send Epaphroditus too. And, uh, and he actually, Epaphroditus came, we learn that in the context, that he came from Philippi. And now Paul's going to send him back. So that's the first thing I'd write down. The second thing that I observed as I read this is that Paul endorses these guys as men of honor. 
And that's a big deal that Paul endorses Timothy and Epi, I'll call him Epi for short, uh, and, and endorses them as men of honor. In verse 20, Paul says about Timothy, I've got no one else like him. Like there is no other dude in my life that's like Timothy. And he even tells him why. And, and this is a big deal. It's a big deal because Paul, who was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, wrote majority of the New Testament, right under Jesus himself, just did so much for the gospel, and he's endorsing Timothy. So in my mind, it'd kind of be like maybe Peyton Manning endorsing Will Levis and saying, he's a great quarterback. And, and so this is what's happening here is that Paul's saying, this dude is real. Like he's the genuine deal. He's a man of honor. And then in verse 29, he talks of Epaphroditus and he says, receive him. Take him to and men and honor men like him. Like Paul's saying, Epaphroditus is this really amazing guy. And you should honor men that are like him because he's so awesome. And it makes you wonder as you're reading that, you're like, well, what's so special? That's what I'm thinking. What's so special? about Timothy and what's so special about Epaphroditus? And that leads to the third observation question. Well, what were these guys like, right? Like you wanna know what made them so special? Why are they getting endorsed by Paul? And, and so we read through the passage again and we discover that Paul says five things about these guys. Like if you take the time and read it, you'll discover in verse 20 and 21 that he says Timothy, that Timothy took genuine interest in the people at Philippians. Like, he's saying, Timothy was losing sleep over y'all. Like, he was losing sleep over the church at Philippi. He was, he was praying for you. He was up at night praying for you. He was thinking about your needs above his own. In verse 22, it says that Timothy proved himself. Paul's like, Timothy has proved himself again and again and again. And in verse 25, he even says, um, <clears throat> he says that Epaphroditus, that he's my brother, it says he's my brother and he's my fellow worker and he's my fellow soldier. In verse 26, he says that Epaphroditus misses you and is distressed. So he's describing these men. In verse 27 through 30, he tells us that Epi almost died. Like he came from Philippi to him, bringing him this love offering, and he risks his own life and he almost dies for the work of Christ. And so you see what I've done? I've just read it. And as I read it, I write down what I saw. I'm like, Paul uh, is talking about these guys, and here's the things that he points out about them. And he's pretty impressed with them. And why? Why is he so impressed with Timothy and Epaphroditus? And then we get to the second stage, which is interpretation. So now we've asked, what do I see? We ask the question about this passage, what does it mean? And this passage is pretty powerful if you look at it, because it gives us five marks of what it means to be a man of God. Like Paul unpacks five things, five characteristics of a godly man. And so maybe if you're reading it and you want to be a godly person, you're like, hey, there's five characteristics in here that I need to build into my life. There's five things that Paul talks about that I need to put in my life. So let's go back real quick and look at them, see what these five things are and what they actually mean. In verse 20 and 21, we find the first characteristic. Paul says about Timothy for, I don't have anyone like him. Remember, he's like, he's this dude, there's no one like him around me. And why is that true? And he says, because he's genuinely cared about your welfare. Like he's not thinking only of himself. And they lived in a culture where everybody took care of number one. Like it was all about me and nobody else. And Paul saying, Timothy is different. Like he's, he's literally losing sleep over you. He's caring about you. He's praying about you. And that's rare. Paul's like, that's different. He has a genuine interest in others. And nobody else does that around me. 
And they all look out for themselves. So here's the first characteristic we see of a godly man. It's this one. It's that a godly man is caring. Or a godly man puts others before himself. Or a godly man thinks of others above himself. And it's so rare. It's even rare today in 2022 to find an unselfish person. And Paul says, I don't have anyone like him. There's no one else like him. So a godly person is a caring person. The second thing we learn about Timothy is he says that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. And, and so another translation, and here's what I do. If one translation, if it's not jiving with me and I don't get it, like I read from the NIV today, and if I don't understand it fully, I'll jump to another translation. And I might go to the uh, ESV, which is usually my second choice, and I'll go there and I'll read it. You might go to the New Living Translation. It might be even easier for you. Some of us will go to a paraphrase, not a translation, but the message, and it'll tell you uh, just a, in paragraph form what it's saying. And we use other translations to help us. And, uh, and so in here, though, another translation of that says, you know what kind of person Timothy is? He's proved to be this, a person of honor. And so there's this thing, this deep uh, appreciation, this deep um, um, love for Timothy. And, and the word proven means that, that he's been tested. Like, like Timothy's been tested and verified and checked out. He's passed the background check. He's made it. He's, he's checked off all the boxes. He's proven himself to be reliable and faithful and dependable as a man of God. And so, so Paul makes this note that he's proven himself. And what is needed today are men who have proven themselves. Like we need men today in our lives who are consistent, right? Like we need some consistent men. And that's number two, that a godly man is consistent. That a godly man has proven himself and, and that we're not going to settle for anything but a man who is consistent. The next verse goes on and it says, I have thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, uh, and your messenger and the minister to my need. And Paul gives us three metaphor here, three metaphors here um, that are relational. And he talks about Epi being his brother. He talks about Epi being his fellow worker. And he talks about Epi being his fellow soldier. And I see that as I read that, that these words have one thing in common, that these guys um, were, were, were better together, that they relied on each other, that they worked better in cooperation. And so I wrote down that a godly man is cooperative, that a godly man is cooperative, that, that uh, Paul said, he's my brother, he's my fellow worker, he's my fellow soldier. Why? Because Christian life, that we do life together that we're in it together, that we cooperate with one another, that it's team us, right? Like there's no I in team, there's no lone ranger, that, that Epaphroditus was a team player and he would do whatever it is to help further the gospel. And, uh, and so he didn't think on his own, but he worked together. And I say this all the time, we're better together. And so godly men work together or godly men are cooperative. They're not lone rangers, but they're team players. They're easy to work with. And so that would be the third thing I'd write down. A godly man is cooperative. And then the fourth thing is this. In verse 26, it says, Epaphroditus, it says, for he's been longing for you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And the church in Philippi, uh, they decide to take up this love offering for Paul. And the next challenge for them is to get it to Paul. Like there was no cash app back in the day, right? Zillow, Zillow whatever it's called, wasn't there. And, uh, and so you had to physically take the money from one place to the next and it was a far distance from Greece to Rome. And Epaphroditus, he was a businessman and in the church. And he volunteers. He's like, hey, I'll go. 
I'll, t- I'll take a few months, not weeks, not days, but a few months off to travel from Greece to Rome, and I'll, I'll give him the love offering. And so he's going there, and, and he's doing this at great personal expense. And he's also, he gets sick, we learn, along the way, and he almost dies. And Paul says that he's stressed because, because others are worried about him, that he's stressed. He's not, he's not thinking of himself, but he's thinking about how his actions and his words affect others. Listen, a godly man thinks about how his actions and his words are going to affect others. A godly man thinks about, before I put send on my Facebook post, I'm going to think about how my words and my actions are going to affect my brothers and my sisters around me, because that's what a godly man does. And so a godly man is considerate. We'll just say considerate, uh, meaning he's concerned about the feelings of others. He's concerned about how his actions and his feelings and his words are going to affect the people that are around him. First uh, Peter 3.7 backs this up when it, come, when it talks about relationships. And Peter says, husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. And so Peter's even saying, dude, being considerate is a big part of being a godly man, meaning that you're going to think about how your actions and your words and what you're going to do are going to affect the person that you love, the person that you're spending the rest of your life with. How are my actions and my words going to affect my spouse? And so we learn that a godly man is considerate. And then finally in verse 27, we learn the fifth one. And indeed, uh, it says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, Paul says, but he had mercy on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul's like, listen, if this dude died on the way to give me the love offering, I don't know what I would do with myself. I would feel so much shame and guilt, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see, Epaphroditus, he risked his life for the sake of of the gospel. And so what do we learn? A fifth characteristic is that a godly man is courageous. That a godly man, we need some godly men that are courageous in our world today. We need some men that are going to stand up and some men that are going to be bold for Jesus. Some men that are not going to be ashamed of the gospel, but some men that are going to stand up and say, I'm going to put Jesus first in my life and I'm going to put Jesus, God first in my marriage and I'm going to do the things that I need to do to raise my kids up. I'm going to bring my kids to church on Sunday morning. I'm not going to send them with my wife to church and stay home and watch football. I'm going to be there with them. We need some courageous bold men in our lives. And so a godly man is fearless and a godly man is bold. And so we've got these five characteristics. We just read through this simple verse that just looked like a thank you note. And we've come up with five characteristics of a godly man. After interpreting the passage, after discovering what it means, and we learned that, uh, that men of honor are caring and men of honor are consistent and cooperative and considerate and most of all, courageous. And now that we've done that, that's just the second step. Now we're on the third step, association. And so we look in the Bible and we say, is there anything else in the Bible to help us to understand this passage? And so you might turn to your concordance in your Bible. And again, often in the back, um, it, it may look like an index, but it's a concordance. And you can look up words. And so you might look up the word Timothy, and you might look at all the Bible verses, because it'll tell you where all Timothy is found in the Bible. And you might read more about Timothy. Or you might look up Epaphroditus, and you might find a couple verses about him. Or you might look up the word considerate, or you might look up the word courageous and find more about what the Bible says about the Bible. And, uh, and so you, you do association. And then the last step, after you've done that, uh, the last thing you do, the final thing, is application. You ask yourself the question, what am I going to do about it? 
Like, I've just learned about Timothy. I've learned about Epaphroditus. I've learned about these qualities of what a godly man looks like. Now, what am I going to do about it? And remember, you only believe the parts of the Bible that you actually do. That's so huge. You only, uh, uh, you only believe the parts of the Bible that you actually do. It's not enough to study it. You got to do something about it. Every week, I've, I've quoted this passage from James chapter 1, uh, verse 22. Now I'm going to put it on the screen because I mean business now. It's up on the screen. And here's what it says. Do not merely what? Listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but what? Do what it says. And this is where um, you would use a technique that we learned in small groups this week. It's the weirdest technique ever. Rick Warren came up with it. It's not mine, um, but it's one that's easy to remember. It's called Space Pets. And so everybody say Space Pets with me. So space best is just an acronym, and, it's, and acronyms are used as easy ways to remember things. And so when you want to apply scripture to your life, you just remember the word space pets. And every one of those words, S-P-A-C-E-P-E-T-S, uh, every one of them is a word to help you to understand how to apply the scripture to your life. And so let me just give you the questions. There are nine questions about the text. They're on bookmarks that are on your chair, by the way, and you can take those home with you, put them in your Bibles, remember them. If you don't use a Bible, maybe you put it in your notes in your phone and just or take a picture of it to remind you. But here's the deal, nine questions that you can ask about any text. If you're online, uh, you might want to write these down. You don't have the bookmark, but you can write them down. And here's the question. The first question is, um, is there a sin to confess? As I read the passage, there's sin to confess. The second one is this, is there a promise? P, is there a promise to claim? As I read the scripture, is God promising something? The second one is there, an, or third one is, is there an attitude? A, attitude. Is there an attitude to change? The next one, is there a command, C, is there a command that I need to obey? The Bible is full of promises and the Bible is full of commands. And so is there a command as I read this passage that I need to obey? Or maybe is there an example, E, example to follow? Is there an example for me to follow? Or is there P, a prayer to pray? Or is there E, an error to avoid? That as I read this passage, the character made a big mistake and I, I can learn from that. So maybe there's an error that I need to avoid. Or is there a truth, T, is there a truth to, um, to believe? As I read this passage, there's some timeless truth in there that I can apply to my life. Or lastly, S, is there something I can thank God for? At the very least, in every passage you read, there's something that you can say thank you to God for. And so for this passage that we just read, there was definitely five examples to follow. And it doesn't, you don't need to be a man for it. It's a godly person. Here's five characteristics of a godly person that they need to be consistent, they need to be caring, they need to be cooperative, they need to be considerate, and they need to be courageous. And so I would look at these as five examples in the Bible, five examples, and then I would ask myself the question, which ones do I need to work on in my life? Like as I look at those, do I need to be more courageous? Do I need to be more considerate? Am I being selfish all the time? Do I need to cooperate better with others? Is there caring? Am I always thinking of myself? Am I being selfish? And so you just ask yourself, which one of these examples do I need to work on in my life? Or maybe you can go even a stretch further and say, hey, is there someone in my life that I can honor because they have these characteristics? Like, is there someone that, like a Timothy in my life that I can say, I have seen this guy and there's nothing like them around me? Is there someone you can go up to and say, listen, I just want you to know that when you did this, I saw Jesus in your life. It reminded me of Jesus. And I just want you to know, thank you. Thanks for being a role model. Thanks for doing something supernatural in your life. 
so we can honor other people. But the most important thing we have to remember, church, is you gotta apply it. You gotta apply what you're reading to your life. And this message, whether we believed it or not, had an important message for us. Like what it means to be a godly man in a godless world. We may have just thought it was a thank you note. Well, it's just a thank you note. Just Paul bragging on a couple guys. But it had so much more in it when we took the time to observe it. We took the time to, uh, to, to understand what it means, interpret it and associate it and then apply it to our lives. So let me just challenge you this week. Let me challenge you to incorporate Bible study in your weekly rhythm. Now, here's what I'm not telling you to do. I'm not telling you to spend an hour every day uh, doing Bible study, but maybe one day a week, you could take a passage that you're reading and you could do the hard work of really diving into it, like really observing it and really writing things down and, and then interpreting it and then associating it with other passages and then applying it to your life. Every passage we read, we should apply. We should apply every passage to our lives. But maybe we do the hard work of Bible study once a week. Just dive in there once a week and really see it. Spend 30 minutes instead of 15. Spend 45 minutes instead of 10 really diving into the text. At the very least, at the very least, ask yourself the nine questions every day. Just commit space pets to memory. Is there a sin that I need to confess out of this? Is there a promise I need to claim? Is there an attitude I need to change? Is there a command I need to obey? Is there an example I need to follow, a prayer I need to pray? Is there a, uh, an, an error that I need to avoid or a truth I need to believe? Is there something in here I just need to say thank you, God, for? Just apply it to your life because if you're just reading scripture and you're not applying it to your life, you're not doing anything. You're wasting your time and you're wasting God's time because this book is supernatural and in it is the treasures, the treasures that God has for you. And there are some amazing, amazing treasures in here. Like today, you know five characteristics of a godly man just from one simple passage that you would have never gotten that from if you didn't take the time to dive in. So let me pray for us. And let me pray that we will become people of the word and not, and not just people of the word, but doers of the word. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for our time together. I thank you for your word, Lord. God, I thank you that this book that you've given us uh, has everything in it that we need to live the Christian life, has everything in it that we need for salvation. And God, when I think of salvation, I think there's probably some people in this room today who have never said yes to you. And Father, if there's someone in this room that has never experienced your salvation, then I pray that today would be the day that they would say yes to you. God, your word says that if we will confess with our mouths and we'll believe in our hearts that you died for our sins and that you rose from the dead so that we might have life eternal, that we would be saved. So Father, for that person that's here today, they just confess, God, I'm a sinner. I have made mistakes, but I believe, Lord, I believe that you came and you lived this on this world the perfect life and you died on the cross for my sins and then you died and you rose from the grave so that I might have a forever relationship with you would you come into my life would you transform me would the transformation begin just say that to God or maybe just say me too God just say me too that's what I want 
for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that we would become people of the word. Lord, that we would not ignore the Bible. That we would never find ourselves saying, well, I don't read it because I don't understand it. But Father, that we would apply these tools that we've learned this morning to help us to understand the deeper meanings that are found in the word of your, that are found in your word. And Lord, most of all, may we not just read it, may we apply it to our everyday lives. Lord, help us to apply it. Help us to use this tool to ask nine questions to apply the word of God to our lives so that we might be transformed. We love you, Lord. Thanks for transforming us and loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, we're about to wrap up and uh, sing our last song. And um, as we do, uh, we want you to know that these altars are open for you. This area up front, our house is your house. And so you come, and if you want to spend some time in prayer, you're more than welcome to. If you want someone to pray with you, I'm right up front. My wife's right up front. Um, we'd be happy to pray for you and with you. Just tap us on the shoulder. We'll come and pray with you. Um, and, uh, and, and the rest of us, we're going to stand up, and we're going to sing. We're going to join with our team in singing our praises to the Lord. So let's stand together, and let's sing. <laughs>